So this is a non-fiction books podcast. We are going to discuss about uh, mostly about contemporary uh, non-fiction books. Uh, uh, in the recent times, there have been a lot of knowledge and insights uh, which are uh, coming up. So we are uh, trying to explore these insights. Uh, this uh, podcast is an attempt to explore this uh, uh, recent developments. So it could be uh, knowledge about nature or climate crisis, anything new. Uh, from the contemporary uh, fiction side, uh, artificial intelligence or quantum computers, uh, um, rise of dictators, degradation of democracies or fake news. A lot of good books are out. So this uh, podcast is going to discuss about non-fiction books. Now, before I get into this, uh, it's very difficult to find out what is the book which uh, we need to discuss, uh, what are the good books available. It's not really about largest selling or um, uh, something which is recommended by... Uh, the market or uh, influencers and so on. We have to create our own context uh, to find out uh, what what is a good book or what is a time which uh, what, because the time is limited. You know, we we are investing when you are investing on in a book, we are investing a lot of time and effort, and therefore you have to choose the books very carefully. Uh, it could be the books recommended by people who matter in that particular field, or uh, people whom you respect and you follow or you try to understand their um, thinking or uh, recommendations of books so that could be one way or uh, you could also read the brief of the book and uh, try to get an insight on what the book could be and whether it is interesting to pursue or put your time and effort so uh, having said that uh, this uh, this is the first podcast of books here and uh, the first book i've chosen to read uh, f- to to discuss in this podcast is the book which i read last month it is an immense world uh, the book, the name of the book is Immense World, an immense world, how animal senses reveal the hidden realm around us. It is written by Ed Young. So uh, this book is about, uh, it's a very interesting book. This book is about how other uh, species perceive the world. Uh, this book invites uh, for an experience for the world beyond the confines of our senses through other species. So in the earlier part of the book, uh, the author discusses about the term umwelt. In fact, the, this particular term, uh, word, is um, mentioned throughout the book. So we need to understand what exactly umwelt means. Now, umwelt is a German word. Uh, technically, it means environment. But uh, it has been used to define the unique uh, sensory bubble of each species. Uh, uh, that is the sense and experience of each species. So uh, the word defines the per- perceptual world of each species how they experience and seize the world. Uh, this is important to understand because uh, uh, we have a tendency to anthropomorphize. Uh, that is, inappropriately uh, attributing human emotions or mental abilities to other animals. Uh, this is the most common tendency. But the, uh, the worst part here is that, uh, uh, that uh, the tendency to uh, frame animal lives in terms of our senses uh, than theirs. So uh, we tend to undermine the umbelt of other species. Mm. So we uh, view uh, the senses, uh, their senses through ours. In fact, their senses is entirely different. That That is the uh, whole uh, crux of this uh, book here. That is to see the world through the uh, sensory perceptions or pers- the perceptual world of uh, species. So if you're not able to see that, if you're trying to see the world uh, through senses, through our own senses, to a species which is entirely different, 
Uh, this not only underestimates the capacity for animals, but also loses the chance to appreciate how wondrous uh, uh, nature truly is. So, for me also, this book uh, holds a lot of meaning because uh, uh, last many years I did work as a naturalist and I was trying to learn from nature what we can uh, learn about nature, that is about trees, birds and so on. Later on I shifted to biomimicry and I started teaching biomimicry. So it's about what we can learn from nature. So from about learning about nature to learn from nature. Now this book uh, is quite insightful because uh, uh, it's also evolution for me in that sense, a natural extension. Uh, because now we are looking at uh, the world from the eyes of uh, uh, different species or the unique world which each species are able to perceive. So that way it's also very interesting uh, understanding for me also. So, so Umbelte is about experiencing world through eyes uh, of other species. Like for instance if you take the uh, jumping spiders who have different sets of eyes for detecting motion and, uh, and for sharp vision. So, uh, so they have lateral eyes and the central eyes. So how is that they are able to see and how does it, uh, uh, the whole understanding of vision uh, from a jumping spider's eyes is entirely different. It's, uh, it's, it's umult. Uh, or uh, for instance, uh, how, how can we taste through the feet? The mosquitoes uh, taste uh, through uh, the feet of mosquito or uh, hear the sound through the feet of uh, elephants. So, or even able to sense magnetic field of earth like turtles uh, or electric field like eels or uh, body heat uh, like rattlesnake. So we have uh, able to perceive, different species are able to perceive in different ways. So earth is filled with sights and textures and sounds and vibrations, smells and tastes, uh, electric field and magnetic field. Um, there's an incredible uh, sensory diversity of planet. So. Each species in that sense is a unique uh, sensory bubble. So, so, so this Embolt, uh, when we mention Embolt, Umbelt, uh, it is about the perception of each species uh, to the immense uh, sensory diversity of the planet. It's a, uh, it's a, it's a representation of a tiny sliver of this experience. Also, it is not really confined to degree of sensing, but the kind of sensing. So even with the same kind of sensors, it could be located, deployed in different ways. Uh, so we have sense organs uh, appearing in uh, different part body parts. For instance, we have species with eyes on genitals and uh, ears on knees and noses on limbs, uh, tongues all over the skin. So the whole understanding of senses uh, from different species is, uh, uh, is entirely uh, different from our own understanding. So. <coughs> It's also uh, reconstructing this information, how they are able to reconstruct these informations in the brain. Uh, it gives an insight that, uh, uh, you know, it will give an different insight. Human mind has evolved by processing human body. So the way we understand the world is through our body. The, the consciousness arose from the human body. So uh, when we look at other species, how are they experiencing world is also an insight to our limitations too. So, for instance, uh, try the complex mind of an octopus, uh, which has distributed nervous system. So, uh, most of his neurons are uh, uh, in the arms uh, rather than in the head. So, uh, what what it means is that uh, it is uh, semi-autonomous um, uh, touch or taste. 
so it has a same autonomous touch or taste and um, uh, as against uh, a completely separate vision so how does this process inside the mind and how do they put it together so we may not even be able to understand this but this is uh, an insight we have so each uh, species is constrained in some way and liberated in others uh, it suits uh, towards the needs and context of the existence of that particular species for instance if you look at uh, starfish uh, it has simple eyes on the tips of its arms and it is used to find a shelter in reef and that is what it needs it, it for its existence it does not need uh, uh, eagle's eye to spot prey so within the context of its requirement its eyes have evolved so evolution is tuning animal sense to the need of the owner so this is an interesting and for for to understand this uh, you need to have a, a kind of a imaginative leap to understand the umwelt of each species you need to have an imaginative leap uh, informed imaginative leap and um, uh, in this book earlier part of this book mentions that uh, uh, researchers who are uh, uh, researching in this field uh, tend to do well if they also have a background in arts and uh, given a lot of examples and also people who are minds or uh, brains are wired in different way so they are uh, what we call perceptually divergent from normal human beings and able to perceive uh, uh, the umwelt of other species so they are able to kind of uh, see past the perceptual world that our brains automatically create so in the early part of the book um, there is a mention of tree hoppers and how they are able to how they are communicating through the vibration through plants on which they stand uh, the vibration is not audible but when they are able to convert this vibration into sound uh, it sounds like uh, cows moving so uh, rather than scurrying insects what you see is uh, cows uh, moving uh, which is uh, amazing uh, insight and uh, uh, so when we uh, look around there is no sound and uh, these insects are able to Uh, produce sounds like cows and mm, so when uh, the, the the insight here is when we pay attention to other animals our world also expands and deepens uh, so realize through plants uh, throbbing with uh, silent vibrational songs like tree hopper you see through the eyes of uh, or sensory perceptions of dogs and you see that cities are crisscrossed with uh, scent carrying histories and biographies of their residents or uh, if you uh, for a fish Uh, you realize that the water in the river is uh, not just water it is also full of tracks and trails so suddenly what happens is that when you have this kind of insights what happens uh, you have a magical uh, magnifying glass mm. so so each species is uh, constrained in some ways and liberated in others Uh, some people childishly rank animals according to the sharpness of the senses and value uh, them only when their abilities surpass our own uh, this book is uh, interesting in the sense that uh, it is not about superiority of uh, species or ranking them but about diversity because uh, clearly it is about the umwelt and how survival species are surviving to the requirement the context in which they live in and not about who has the sharpest eye and so on Uh, it also uh, gives an understanding to give a space for these unique lives uh, to live their life so this is about uh, this uh, introduction to this book so this book is uh, divided into different chapters and uh, what we're going to do is that we're going to discuss each chapter uh, briefly and uh, that is how we're going to proceed
So we're going to start with the first chapter here, which is about smells and tastes, and we're going to discuss each chapter quite uh, briefly. Uh, again, it is suggested that you buy this book; it's quite elaborately discussed. So I'm going to do is what I'm going to do is that I'm going to take a few of the few facts here and uh, uh, some anecdotes, facts here and there, to make it much more interesting. But again, you have to buy this book; it's a collector's item. Please buy this book; uh, it's a very interesting book. Now, as far as smells and tastes are concerned, um, it's very difficult to define uh, smell. You know, uh, m many living things can sense light, and some can respond to sound. A few can detect electric and magnetic field, but everything can detect chemicals. Even a bacterium, a one-celled uh, uh, species, can find food and avoid danger by picking up uh, molecular clues from outside world. So, chemicals uh, is the most ancient and universal source of sensory information, but it's hard, uh, very hard to understand and define. Uh, for instance, if light and sound waves can easily be um, measured through uh, quantifiable properties like uh, uh, brightness or wavelength or frequency and loudness. A smell does not have such uh, predictable parameters. In fact, uh, what scientists do is that they have subjective concepts like intensity and uh, pleasantness and that too is measured by asking people. Yet uh, we have animals who are able to work out these intricacies of olfaction successfully. So. In fact, it is not right to pit one species of smell, a sense of smell against another. Smell is diverse and often unquantifiable. Rather than asking the question, how good is animal smell, sense of smell, we should be asking questions like, you know, how important is smell to that animal? What does it uses its sense of smell for? So that is the recurrent uh, understanding of this particular book is that uh, we are not into comparisons about diversity. It's a context and um, relevance of that particular uh, sense for the the existence or uh, thriving of that particular species which matters so uh, this uh, s smells uh, there's a elaborate uh, discussion on uh, dog uh, olfaction or sense of smell of dogs and uh, there's a comparison of how the sense of smell of dog is much sharper uh, as uh, compared to uh, let's say for the sake of discussion human beings so when when we inhale what we do is that we have a single air stream which allows both uh, smell and breath but in case of dog what really happens is that when the dog sniffs the the, the air stream is split into two so the one majority of the air goes to the lungs and uh, the function goes on but a small part of it is uh, forms a tributary and goes to uh, the snot and um, uh, which is meant only for smelling and it passes through a kind of a there's an elaborate discussion on how what really happens and there is a olfactory epithelium there's a chamber there's a labyrinth which is co covered in sticky sheet of olfactory epithelium which is full of uh, new long neurons and uh, odorant receptors which is connected to the brain through olfactory bulbs and so on so and that is one and second is that when we exhale what happens is that we are giving out all this order and, and um, from the nose and uh, the smell tends to flicker and uh, slowly get reduced and vanish. But in case of dog, what happens is that it has the, if you look at the nose of the dogs, it has, it has um, uh, in the front facing holes, it tapers to side slits. So what really happens is that it creates a rotating vortices that waft fresh orders into the nose. So it keeps on wafting. Uh, order into the nose and uh, make it much more stronger so what happens to the window dog is exhaling it also is taking the more of order so it is still stuck sucking in and that makes uh, the dogs uh, olfaction or sense of smell much more keener
There's also example of Moth, which is uh, order-guided uh, drones. In fact, if you uh, are aware of Moths, you'll know that uh, it's the last age of metamorphosis of a particular species. And uh, it's, it does not really have a digestive system, it does not have mouth part. It's solely based on scent. So it has to uh, kind of find a mate and uh, reproduce. So that, that is the only guiding factor here. And, um, and it does it through feathery antennas and um, uh, other very good example is of ants and if you look at ant the communication the ant is purely based on smell and uh, the super organism or the collective intelligence of ant is uh, the reason why it has uh, become a super organism and is able to uh, s uh, do such intricate uh, tasks a uh, single ant is not able to perform as collectively there and that's purely because of the scent smell and uh, uh, chemical called pheromones which it uh, gives and um, the pheromone trails is what makes ants very successful species and in fact the uh, what happens is the strength the pheromone trail is so strong that uh, if ants falls into a loop they go into a death spiral because they keep on rotating they keep on uh, circulating in the same loop and they tend to die of exhaustion in fact uh, this is an example of biologist eo wilson the legendary eo wilson what he did was that he daubed uh, uh, ants with oleic acid which it gives up it, uh, it dies so what happens is that other ants uh, uh, picked up this uh, this uh, oleic uh, acid daubed uh, ants even though it was alive and they dumped into the ground garbage pile so because it smelled uh, dead so the sense of smell is so strong that does not uh, it even crosses the logic of the ant and that is the reason why it has become such a success successful species other species are mentioned like elephants polar bear and uh, some spiders even salmons which use uh, smell to navigate in fact uh, the whole idea of animal olfaction is not just confined it is not about detecting chemicals it's more of creating an autoscape uh, like a landscape for food and shelter for instance, uh, uh, there's a mention of uh, ocean plankton, uh, which is uh, eaten by krills. The moment the krill eat is, eats uh, eat this plankton, what happens? It releases a DMS, that is dimethyl uh, sulfide. So the moment the dimethyl sulfide is uh, released and it uh, it attracts all kinds of species like whales, fishes, seabirds. So uh, generally, if you look at the ocean, for us it is invisible, uh, and even we are not able to kind of smell it. Uh, but for other species, uh, it's a it's a topography of uh, of uh, order, it's an order scape which is uh, happening there. So uh, later on, there's a discussion on smell and taste, and um, it's a very difficult, uh, complicated uh, to differentiate between smell and taste. Uh, both are meant to detect chemicals uh, in the environment, but then if you look at uh, vanilla, it smells so nice, but when you taste it, it is disgusting. So there is a difference between smell and taste also. Uh, conventionally, what, would, what we could say is that uh, for human beings, smell is through nose and taste is through tongue. But when you look at other species, uh, for instance, uh, take the example of snake. Snake uses uh, tongue uh, to smell, it does not taste. And uh, insect uses, like flies uses, um, or even butterflies uses uh, uh, leg or feet uh, to taste. And uh, some of the fits, uh, fishes, like catfish, uses um, um, their uh, body to taste so the whole idea of uh, uh, smell through nose and tongue uh, through for taste is uh, is disputed by this understanding and uh, then you could say that uh, uh, smell is sensing molecules drifting through air whereas taste is uh, uh, you know you are sensing molecules that is stationary like uh, solid uh, liquid form uh, 
so one can say that sense works at a distance whereas uh, taste works through contact but uh, then that itself uh, is uh, disputed because uh, the dis uh, the receptor of recognizing smell itself is covered with mucus and liquid so and secondly a species like uh, uh, ant smell through contact through antenna so we we don't know how to distinguish it's quite complicated and uh, there's a whole discussion on this but what is understood is that uh, taste is uh, innate or reflexive reflexive that uh, we recoil at uh, at bitter from birth uh, smell associated with uh, experience so that that is a distinction we can make and uh, uh, for human being uh, taste is quite a simple sense uh, abstracted into five basic qualities uh, that is the salty sweet bitter sour and umami so although we uh, there is a taste connoisseur but our sense of smell is uh, very limited to this five basic qualities which is detected to small number of receptors mm. but uh, smell is infinite selection of molecules so uh, there is a view that um, which is being uh, strongly uh, supported here is that the most of the taste we sense is uh, through smell so there are examples where people lost the sense of smell during corona they found the food tasteless so uh, it actually strengthens this idea smell is put for complex use for navigating oceans finding prey coordinating herd and colonies whereas taste is almost always used for uh, making binary decisions about food that is whether this food should be eaten or not yes or no or whether it's good or bad or whether i should consume or spit so this is uh, the whole briefly about the chapter on uh, taste and uh, smell and uh, next uh, we move uh, towards the next chapter which is uh, uh, about sight and uh, uh, ways to see so next we look at how uh, species are using light to see and the chapter starts with uh, jumping spider and if you are aware of jumping spider there's a very incredible uh, species called porcia now porcias are very sophisticated they have very sophisticated hunting tactics and they are like leopards you know they plan and uh, strategize their moves and while they stalk and ambush prey and um, unlike other spiders that use uh, that uh, sense the world through vibration and touch that is web spinning spiders the jumping spiders uh, completely rely on vision and therefore they have eight eyes that is four pairs of eyes which covers the whole half of their head and uh, uh, the central pair is the large one and the three lateral pair or the secondary pair now the central pair uh, is uh, is quite mobile and uh, it is able to recognize uh, pattern shapes and color and it's quite sharp so it is as uh, remarkable as sharp and sees can see as clearly as elephant or a dog which is quite remarkable for a small species like spider that they are able to see like elephant or a dog and uh, that is the same structure in the same manner as like uh, galileo's telescope and the lateral pair but the only problem with the uh, central pair is that uh, its uh, view is quite narrow it's more like a searchlight and uh, that is why the secondary pairs or the three secondary pairs of the lateral pair uh, compensate that by providing a broader field of view although uh, the secondary pair is quite is immobile but they are very highly sensitive to motion so uh, they are able to track movements and redirect attention so which means it it uh, redirect attention of the central pair uh, that is it tells the central eye where to look different eyes using different uh, performing different tasks and they're coming together to perform the function of the vision for a spider and uh, this is quite remarkable and uh, although we share the visual reality with other species uh, other creatures 
but uh, we experience it in utterly different ways and uh, that is what the jumping spider tells us and uh, we have creatures like jumping spider living next to us who have completely different interpretation of the world we live in so we have eyes uh, also which is varied in different creatures in different ways so we have eyes which comes in numbers of 8 unlike human beings we have two eyes uh, other species of eight eyes or hundreds of eyes like scallops and so on we have uh, eyes of giant squid which is as big as a soccer ball and uh, we have uh, eyes which is as small as the nucleus of a cell which is found in fairy wasps we have uh, eyes like humans uh, squid or jumping spider which uses a single lens for focusing light on single retina we have eyes like crustaceans of insects which have uh, compound eyes and uh, which has many separate light gathering units eyes that can appear in different part of the body depending on the use and the context of survival or living of that particular species or the need of that particular species we have eyes coming out uh, species which have eyes which is uh, located on mouth or arms and so on different part of the body uh, we have eyes which can see in crisp details like uh, eagles and we have eyes which can see only blotches of shades so we have different types of eyes uh, eyes which can see perfectly in dark but the moment it becomes dry dark uh, so bright it cannot see we have eyes which can see in slow motion or time lapse lapse while uh, we have also eyes which can see uh, two direction at once but what is uh, common in all these eyes is that they have photoreceptive cells and uh, which is all made of protein called opsins so this is very common in all the species so the question arises if all the vision relies on same protein and if this protein detect uh, light then why is that eyes are so diverse it's a very interesting question the answer lies uh, in the characteristic of light the properties of light as we know that most of the light comes to earth from sun and the presence of light hints at temperature it hints at the time of the day and depth of the water which is utilized by the species and therefore the eyes perform certain functions the light also reflects objects therefore revealing enemies or mates or shelter another property of light is that it start it travels in straight line and is blocked by solid obstacles creating features of shadows and silhouettes light travels in uh, covers long distance almost instantaneously and uh, therefore offering fast and far ranging information in multitude of ways and uh, therefore animals sense it for myriad reasons so this is the reason why there are different uh, types of eyes now broadly there are uh, four types of eyes which has been classified depending on the four stages of increasing complexity as the eyes have evolved like for instance the first one is a simple light light sensitive cells which is uh, photoreceptor cells and uh, that is meant to detect the presence of light and this you can see in simple aquatic animals uh, uh, who want to detect the presence or the absence of light and that is how they survive Uh, it's also found in the photoreceptors of cep- cephalopods and uh, like octopus and cattle uh, which is used for uh, color changing ability the second type of eye is that you add shade to light sensitive cells that that is you have membranes or pigments therefore it gives a sense of direction so that helps the species to c- crawl towards shade or finding protection or shelter the third type of eye as the sophistication increases is the shaded cells come together therefore it gives a sense of image or low visibility 
And the fourth one is where you improve the clarity, that is, you, you, you introduce uh, focusing elements like lens, therefore sharper image and high resolution. Now, these are diff uh, four types of classification depending on the stages of increasing complexity. Now, that does not really mean that there is a perfect destination or idealized eye, the, or the eyes are evolving towards something uh, sophisticated. It depends on the need of that particular species, so there is no destination to evolve towards. That has to be understood, and all these four types of eyes can be seen now also. Now, what makes this uh, book uh, interesting is the kind of examples it has. Now, another example we have in this book is of scallops. Now, scallops uh, is a clam-like uh, species, and uh, that have hundreds of eyes. In fact, complex eyes. While uh, most of the bivalves, uh, like oysters or uh, mussels, do not even have eye. Now, scallop vision is quite different from the way uh, we see things. Uh, what happens for us is that our brain combines overlapping information from our two eyes into a single scene. Now, this could be done by scallops also. There are hundreds of eyes and hundreds of eyes could uh, bring together into the brain and create a scene. But what happens is that the, uh, the point here is that the scallop's brain is incapable. It's a very rudimentary uh, brain. It is incapable to handle such uh, information. So it's quite a crude brain, so it is not able to handle that. So although each scallop eye has good uh, spatial resolution, the animal uh, itself uh, might not have a spatial vision. So it does not experience the scene as we do in terms of pictures, in terms of movie. Uh, it sees without scenes. Now imagine that a species is seeing things without scenes. And uh, it's, it, you can see it is more as a sense of touch from human context. So that uh, what happens is that the eye is detecting these and informing. So as a warning system. Uh, but it's quite intriguing. The researchers are still intrigued that uh, the species, the creature, uh, which has such a rudimentary brain, is having such uh, eyes which are sophisticated uh, uh, with mirrors and retina that uh, the brain cannot even handle the information that it is being conveyed. Interesting example here. So another very intriguing and uh, interesting example is that of killer flies. Now these killer flies are found in Mediterranean region and they are the size of your house flies. And these are used by farmers and gardeners uh, frequently in greenhouses to capture uh, the pests. Now the thing about killer fly is that it captures its target in space of human blink. Uh, that's unbelievable, that's incredible. What happens is that by the time you blink your eyes, the killer fly has already captured uh, uh, the prey uh, on flight. So uh, its ultra-fast uh, hunt is guided by ultra-fast vision. Now, it might seem strange uh, talking about animals uh, seeing at different speed, now, but that's, that's what exactly it is. You know, but, but the Light is fastest thing in the universe, so how is that different animals or different species are able to see it in different ways? That is because the eyes don't work at light speed. Now, it takes time for the photoreceptor to react to the incoming photons and the photons to send electrical signals that is generated to travel to the brain. So it takes some time. In, a, in, in killer flies, what really happens is that the, what evolution has done is that it has pushed uh, these three steps to its limit in the sense that it has just optimized it. So it just takes six to nine milliseconds 
to the photoreceptors to send electrical signals and for these signals to reach the brains and not only that and for the brains to send commands to their muscles all these three steps steps takes only 6 to 9 milliseconds now just compare that with uh, what happens in human beings for human beings it takes 30 to 60 milliseconds for the photoreceptor to send signals so which means the first step itself it is taking almost uh, five times the time so it is uh, as far as the all the three steps which is done by the uh, which is uh, uh, completed by the killer flies uh, in 6 to 9 millisecond for human beings the first step itself is taking 30 to 60 milliseconds so by the time uh, the signal has left uh, our retina the killer fly has already caught its prey so that's the amount of difference we are having here and not only that the the fly's uh, vision also updates more fastly so more quickly so to understand that we have to understand a factor called the uh, critical uh, flicker fusion so uh, or cff cff what is mean is that it's a measure of how quickly a brain can process visual information it's like a movie frame Uh, it's the point at which the static image blends into the illusion of continuous motion so if you have the film and you rotate it faster that's what happens used to happen in theaters before it it was digitalized is that uh, by the time it reaches or uh, while studying in school you might have this books where on the corner of the book you draw something and then you f- uh, flip the book and it tends to come alive that kind of thing so the point at which the static image blend into illusion of continuous motion is what is what is called critical flicker fusion or cff for humans it is 60 frames per second so by the time we reach the 60 frame per second for human it becomes a continuous motion so we are not able to distinguish now for killer flies it is more than th- 350 frames per second so it's almost five times and uh, interestingly for turtle it is 15 15 frames per second so for turtles human beings would look like moving like flies frantic frantic speed so for killer fly the movie uh, we see that the kind of movie which we see would appear like a slide show that's quite hilarious but that's what it is now that is the reason why uh, when we are trying to spot a fly it is able to dodge us quite easily and uh, f- because for them the world is moving at a slow motion so that brings a very important question so it's uh, it's quite possible that uh, they may have uh, species in the world uh, in nature uh, may have different sense of passage of time so it's something to think about so uh, that is what uh, the first part of this particular uh, podcast for this book is so we'll discuss the second part of this book uh, in the next uh, week uh, that's about it thank you